Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so glad that we're going to have this time together. I hope we have all two hours of it. And I hope your day's been going well. And now we've got a weekend in front of us, so I'm looking forward to that as well. It seems that, according to research, we make up to, you ready for this, 35,000 decisions a day. Seems like a lot. From what we will wear and eat, to how we respond to others, to which route we're going to take to work... But then there are some decisions that you know are going to be like life-altering. And that all depends on which option you choose. So um, sometimes those decisions cause panic attacks. Now, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're also at a time, just with what's going on in the world, that some of you might be in decision fatigue. You're just tired of all the decisions you've had to make. And we're going to talk about that today with my guest who's in studio, Stephanie Williams O'Brien. She's written a book called Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. I'm so glad to have her uh, on the program today. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. So good to be here, Bill. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. How was my intro? That was fantastic since you were reading out of the book. (laughs) (laughs) I was because it's interesting. Uh, It is interesting that we make so many decisions every day. A lot of them are just minute, but... That's a lot of decisions. It is. It is. It's a lot. And uh, it's it's not unique to any one of us. We're all in that spot together. Yeah. And sometimes we just want to know what God's will is. God, just tell me what to do. Yeah. Could you just give me give me a text? Give you know? me a sign, Send me Lord. an email. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to connect with me these days. Just tell me, God, and I'll yeah. do it. <laughs> and what is necessarily wrong with that thinking? Well, you know, first of all, I think there is an absence of a need for a relationship if God's going to just send it into our inbox. Um, and I think that God's heart for us is a relationship through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And and missing out on that would be the biggest mistake of a decision in the world to not have that relationship, in my opinion. And so I think God's beckoning us into that relationship and saying, hey, what would it look like to make your decisions with me and not just ask me to tell you what the answers are? I think that's a big part of it. Not to mention, hey, you know what? I'm not sure that God's opinion is always what we really, truly want to hear if we check our hearts. We yeah. kind of know what we want to do. And if we start to do this whole surrender to Jesus thing, we might end up somewhere we don't want to be. And there's some there's some weird theology and stuff that leads us to that place because I think God's heart for us is that God loves God's kids and wants us to to be stepping into our purpose and meaning in our life, not always in ways that are easy, but ways that are deeply meaningful. Mm-hmm. What is your philosophy of decision-making and spiritual discernment? <laughs> there it is. Well, it's in a book I wrote called Make a Move. Whoa, no, it, I know. It you're is? Right, you're right. You're right. Is it the one I'm holding? It's the one you're holding. You know, oh, uh, I, Stephanie I, Williams O'Brien. Do I always have to say the Williams part? Yeah, because you know why? Why? Stephanie O'Brien and Stephanie Williams is a dime a dozen. We got so many of us. Okay. Nobody will find this book if you okay. just if 
you just put Stephanie Williams. Love both of my names, but that's why yeah. they're in there. So Stephanie Williams <laughs> O'Brien, and, yeah. and the book is Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. Okay, now let's get back to my question, which is <laughs> the, the philo- your philosophy of decision-making and spiritual discernment. Yeah. You know, I think I think there's an opportunity that we have to examine how decisions and decision-making has been formed in our lives. When we look back on our lives, what's influenced how we've come to that to that understanding? And from there, we can say, well, what, what do we think God cares about? And how is God inviting us into decision-making? What do we see in the, in the biblical story? What do we see when we talk to faith leaders of the past and look at their lives and then also people in our lives today? And I come down to this conclusion that there is an importance when it comes to the question, what is God's will for the world, for humanity, for us as Jesus followers. But we can get so caught in this, what is God's will? Maybe he'll write it on a wall. Maybe he will, you know, put it in a text. And we miss out on the way that Jesus invites us to journey with the Holy Spirit in making decisions in our life. So we could let the will of God, which is a great question, actually get in the way of us joining in the way of Jesus and what that looks like. And we see that in multiple stories in scripture, especially in the New Testament, where you see these first people, imagine this. I mean, they sat with Jesus in person. They were face to face. They followed his actual footsteps. And then he goes away and says, I'm going to leave this spirit, the counselor, who's going to remind you of what I said and going to be with you in the midst of all these these huge decisions they made in this movement that we now call the church. The reason probably we're all sitting here today and being people who want to follow Jesus is because they figured out how to make some decisions in a very disorienting world without physical Jesus with them anymore, but by the power and the invitation of the Holy Spirit, the counselor that Jesus offered to them. Yeah. Even when God does sort of lay it in your lap, like he said to Moses, I want you to be my man. Mm -hmm. Moses is going, eh, I don't know if I'm the right guy. Well, let me tell you something. There's all these stories about how God speaks, you know, bushes going on fire and audible voices. It, the 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 one where the hand shows up, okay. <laughs> Is that the creepiest? For yeah, you? that's the creepiest. It, honestly, Bill, if a hand showed up right now in the studio and started writing something, I'm gone. Like I'm out of here because I'm yeah. not going to assume that's God at all. Yeah, you know. So so how do we? Maybe a question for all of us is. How do we expect God to speak? Has God spoken to us? Because for most of us, it's not an audible voice. It's not a creepy hand. So how do we come to understand the feeling in our hearts, the decisions and discussions we have with people we trust, and how that helps us begin to move forward in, not in certainty, but perhaps with assurance? All right. So my next question, uh, Stephanie Williams (laughs) O'Brien, who wrote the book Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World, is how can I be certain that what I hear is from God? Yeah, absolutely. You can't. You can't. We uh, we live in a time that sometimes we refer to, I think N.T. Wright, theologian, talks about the already but not yet. We're in a time when we can have a robust relationship with God, but we're not fully with God face to face yet. And so that means that there's some interference when it comes to how we might hear from God. It's kind of like we all have an antenna, but there's some interference. You know, you're not quite able to hear clearly. And so I think that there is not certainty. But like I said, I think there's a, an option to seek assurance. And assurance is something that I think is a lot uh, more, it's a lot deeper and is something that leads us to have to trust because certainty without, with certainty, we, we don't need to trust, but with assurance, there's a sense of I'm choosing to trust. And not only that this is the right decision, but that no matter what decision I make, God promises to be with me no matter what. Mm -hmm. That's what I think can bring assurance, even when we're not totally sure if we're making the right call. Mm -hmm. Now, Stephanie, you have said that you have experienced torture in making decisions in your past. (laughs) Yeah. And probably more than once, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 
you don't have to talk about the, the decision, but maybe the process. Why were you feeling torture? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that the, the torture comes from different places for different people. For me, it comes from that idea of there is only one right decision. And if I don't get it right, it's like dominoes and everything's going to fall and then I can never make a right decision ever again. This almost version of catastrophizing that's centered around whether or not there's a right or a wrong, which of course there sometimes is from a moral perspective. True. But often when it comes to discernment and decision making, there's maybe a good, a not so good, a better, a best. And that's actually the discernment process. But I still get so hung up on there's no, there's only one right way, um, especially when it feels like a pretty life altering decision. And so in the book, what I talk about is how we can actually break that down so that we're not necessarily starting with yes or no to the life altering decision, but creating space for the Holy Spirit and for discernment for other people and for Jesus to lead us. And through a process that I call in the book experimenting, um, just borrowing from the experimental method and science, you know, and saying, how could that actually help us to break down the bigger decisions and allow room for the Holy Spirit so that as we take one step at a time, making a move one step at a time, we begin to discover what I sometimes call discernment through movement. I'd love it if God just showed up in this room and said something to me. But what about on the way? We see that happening on the way a lot for people trying to follow the Spirit in in the New Testament. Yeah. Can you dumb that down a little bit for me? Yeah. So think about uh, one of my favorite stories, the story of the road to Emmaus. And so these disciples are walking along the road and somebody comes up and starts speaking to them. Uh, spoiler alert, it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. He, mm-hmm. It actually seems to be that Jesus keeps them from recognizing him. But he's speaking to them and then uh, they sit down to eat a meal with him once they arrive. And all of a sudden, as they break bread together, they recognize him. And then because Jesus is such a hardcore leader, he disappears. <laughs> I love that about him too. Like, <laughs> poof, I'm gone. And they, they look at each other and they say something that I just love. They say, I can't believe that we missed that. Weren't our hearts burning when he was speaking to us? And I have no idea why Jesus would make himself not appear to them or why he would, you know, do a disappearing act like that. But I wonder if it was because they needed to learn this new way of of hearing and understanding God that didn't look like seeing Jesus in the flesh, but started to feel like their hearts were burning and wondering about how, why, why is this on my heart and what's happening? And I bet from that day forward, they never ignored that feeling inside of them again. Interesting. Because they had felt something so distinct and so different. And, and then they talked about it with somebody else. I think that's just a great model for us. Mm-hmm. Are we open to what God might be saying or doing that might be a, a sense of a feeling or an emotion or like our hearts are burning or that we've got goosebumps about something or a, a sense of pressure? I, people describe it in so many ways. In fact, I have a whole list in the book of the ways people describe it. What book? <laughs> the book, Make it, a Move. Is that the name of the book? That's the name of it. How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting by, World. Is that the book by Stephanie Williams Stephanie O'Brien? Stephanie Williams O'Brien, yeah. I did not know that. I'm so <laughs> glad that came up in the conversation. You know, and, and I wrote I wrote the title down before the pandemic started, okay. but I wrote the book during the pandemic. And so I don't think I knew what Disorienting World meant until after the title had already been chosen. I'm glad to know that because I, that's the one part of the book that I go, Disorienting <laughs> World. That wasn't that. <laughs> that wasn't connecting with me until just now. Yeah, right. No, seriously, I'm not horribly bright, but yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, let me take the break, uh, and I'm, we're going to come back and talk more about uh, Stephanie's book, Make a Move. Stephanie Williams O'Brien's my guest. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Stephanie Williams O'Brien as my guest. She's written a book called Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. All right, I want to go back to maybe someone has made a bad decision and now they have bad decision phobia. Mm, yeah, that's and, real. And it's, it's real. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. the next decision they have to make is there's, the stakes are high. Yeah, the stakes are high. You know, and there's so many reasons we could list of what makes the stakes feel high in a decision. But certainly the feeling of I, I felt that deep feeling of regret or that wasn't the right decision. That's that's really real. And, and many of us have found ourselves there. So I don't remember us having this part of the conversation, but a listener just chimed in wanting to know if we said something about um, a reference depicting as listening to God's opinion could you please clarify, as you know, scripturally, God gives truth, not opinion. I don't remember saying that. Do you? Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that God's truth is so real, so important, and that one of the truths about God is that God loves us like kids, and just like the kids that we might have in our life, you know, I don't have any kids of my own, but when I think about, like, my niece and nephew, I sometimes just want to see them make the decision that they want to make, and I'm with them, and I'm there with them, I'm walking alongside them, and I think that's... That's part of who God is. So it's not that God is taking that as an opinion. It's that God's heart for us is that we would be able to to take some of those steps knowing and trusting that the truth is, is that God will be with us right by our side, even when we make the wrong decision and we have to turn around and say, that was the wrong one. Yeah. God's still there waiting for us to say, all right, let's try again. Yeah. What are some uh, decision-making roadblocks? I wonder where I got that. Oh, that's chapter six in the book. <laughs> chapter six. Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> Whoa, that was, yeah, that just happened that surprised to be a chapter. Me. Yeah, that's surprising. That surprised just happened me. to be a chapter. Okay, good. Well, you know, I hate to say it, but I think there's a lot. We've mentioned a few. Um, having made decisions in the past that you weren't proud of or you were disappointed in, fear is a big one. Um, you know, it's it's a common thing to say, oh, well, God says don't, do not fear 365 times in the Bible one for each day. And I, as a theologian, I have not double checked that it is actually 365 times, but it's a lot. Yeah. God doesn't want us to experience fear, but you know what? We do. We do experience fear in our life. And I think that the reason that God, that God expresses that through scripture is because we can come to God with that fear and say, Hey, this is where I'm at. This is the fear. This is the anxiety. This is what I'm dealing with. And through that relationship with God, we can move forward in ways that we absolutely can't. If we hold on to that fear, I think that that can be a big barrier um, for a lot of us. I think also you mentioned earlier at the top of the hour, like decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. When you make so many decisions, which for some of us, when it came to our families, our jobs, this last year took us out. We had to make so many decisions we weren't used to making. And it, it just made us mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. I think that can be a big barrier because sometimes that means we'll just take the lazy decision or we'll just try to make a quick decision because we don't want to go through sometimes the the discipline of discernment to really focus in yeah. and to to try to listen to what the spirit might be saying and to bring other people into the decision making. I talk about that a lot in the book, Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions That's in a, a Disorienting World. It's written by myself, Stephanie Williams O'Brien. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and uh, you know, I talk about it a lot. Who are your people? Who are your people that you're gonna that you trust, that know the Lord, that care about you, and are gonna come alongside you as, you know, the Quaker tradition calls it your clearness committee. Who are your people that are going to help you, especially when it comes to those decisions that are life-altering? Um, some of us would have to admit we don't know who those people would be. That might be one of our first decisions. How am I going to start to build some relationships like that for the decisions that I have to make in my life? Who will give me the strength and the energy and the reminder that we can overcome even the fatigue for decisions that matter? Mm-hmm. Indecision is a decision. Mm-hmm. Say something about that. Yeah, well, the, the 
I've heard that quoted by a number of different people. It's not from me, but I, I love it because it helps us to just hit the nail on the head. Indecision is still a decision. If there's something that you know is is coming up ahead and you, because of the wavering, because of the fatigue, don't step towards that decision, that is a decision itself and is going to lead you on a path. And so I think that for some of us, and this isn't everybody, but if if you heard that quote and you felt something in your heart, you know who I'm talking to. That's the, the reality is that when we hold back, we sometimes miss opportunities that God's inviting us into because of that indecision itself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you talk about fatigue, I know there's been stories, you know, it probably happens throughout every household where you say, what would you like for dinner? And you go, I don't know. I can't make another decision. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you're, you're at that point in your day <laughs> yeah. where you're so tired and so exhausted yeah. that you cannot make another decision. Is that part of the decision fatigue you're talking about? Or is that just stress, cortisol, all kinds of stuff that's happened throughout that day? I mean, I think it's both and. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And here's a little tip. That's not a good time to make an important decision. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) And I think that's a good thing to pay attention. And God's wired all of us differently. Pay attention to those moments where you feel your head is most clear. It might not be at 5 p.m. on your drive home. It might not be at 5 a.m. because you're not a morning person. But when are those times? And those are the times to take into prayer, to journaling, to discussions with somebody you trust, the bigger decisions in life. I think that's that's a key thing for us to pay attention to. And it's okay. God wired us all differently. Some of us we're going to come home at 5 o'clock and say, I am an introvert. That was too many people. Let's find something to eat, and I need some alone time. Mm-hmm. Others are going to say, that's a great time to talk it out. I've been sitting alone, or I love people, and I would just love to process the most important things in life. Who are you? Where is that for you? And how do you invite God's Spirit into that space? Yeah. Talk about spiritual life experiments. What is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. And give me an example. So experimenting is how I like to think of the way we can create space to look for God's spirit, God's invitations on our everyday journey in life. We can make some small choices, create some experiments and say, what would it look like for me to invite the Holy Spirit into that? So in the book, I talk through different things about how you might have experiments in different areas of your life, vocational, relational, spiritual. When it comes to our spiritual lives, a lot of us, given the different things we've experienced, it sometimes feels like our faith is shaken a little bit because of something difficult, because of questions we're asking. And I want to encourage people to say, hey, that's not bad. If you've got questions in your life, if you feel like you're, you're, you're experiencing some doubt, that's an opportunity for an experiment to say to God's spirit, hey, I need to seek deeper. I need, I'm f- filled with some of these questions. And so to design an experiment would look like saying, I'm going to invite some people who uh, I think are really intelligent into some com- conversations and say, I'm going to have coffee with them. I'm going to bring my questions. And an experiment in itself would be to say, I'm going to have this this conversation, and then I'm going to see afterwards, what did I learn from that? It might be signing up for a class. It might be discovering how you might connect with God in nature even more than you ever have before, because maybe you grew up thinking the most important time to connect with God is on Sunday morning, which is a great time, mm-hmm. but so is maybe when you're looking out at a beautiful body of water or walking through the trees. And an experiment might be saying, I'm going to, three times a week, I'm going to walk through a, a a pond park by my house, and I'm going to think about how God has made this world. And after doing that for, for three weeks, let me see if I feel more connected to God than I did before. That would be an experiment. Little experiments like that actually move us forward and keep us from that, that decision kind of paralysis and an analysis paralysis that can yeah. often get us really stuck. That's some good wisdom, Stephanie Williams O'Brien. <laughs> I like that. So I wrote it in the book, Make what a Move. Book? That one? Yeah, Make okay. a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. That's interesting. <laughs> What about the idea of 
wanting people wanting to test God, a la Gideon. Yeah, you've got a, quite a few stories in Scripture of people wanting to test God, and you know, it's, lots of theologians have different different decisions about that. What does that mean? And and debate about that. But you know, at the end of the day. God invites us into a relationship. God wants us to be people who turn to God and to open our minds and hearts to how might God might want to lead us. And I think this idea of testing God comes actually, and I, and I guess what I would want to ask somebody is, where is that coming from? Because I think oftentimes it's back to that fear thing again, that I needed to test God to put out the fleece or to, to test God through different methods um, that you see in Scripture. And we've got all different methods today, like I'm going to I'm going to open my Bible and then put my finger down on a page and see what happens. Or, uh, God, if you let this and this and this happen, then I will do this. Kind of that if-then stuff. I think that the temptation that we have towards that usually is coming from a place of fear. And God's wanting to move into that place and say, you don't have to be afraid. You can trust me, even though that means I'm not going to tell you the outcome. And in fact, that's the only way we're going to walk side by side together towards the future that I have for you. Mm -hmm. What was the hardest part of this book for you to write? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I share a lot of my personal story in this book, um, as I did in my other book I wrote, too. And, you know, every time somebody's writing, let, I'll let people in under the hood a little bit. Yeah. You're going to write down this book. You, you want to, you feel the tendency to just talk about other people's stories, you know, like that's safer. But it was challenging to go back to some of the times in my life where decisions were really difficult. Like I, like you said, that I felt like they were just really hard and um, it was difficult to write those down. But you know what else? It was really freeing in the end to to have said, look at what God did. And in some ways, this book for me is kind of a, a marker, kind of a Ebenezer to say, look what God did in my life up until now. And I trust that God's going to be with me in the future as I make difficult decisions because they will come. Mm-hmm. So what would you hope a reader of the book, Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World? What, what, what's something that they'd walk away with and put in a brown paper bag and go, I'm, 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 I've got this now. Yeah, I, I, it would be the process of experimenting. Okay. I outline it really specifically. Yeah, no, I saw that. Yeah, because we're people in the, who... In the book, Make lots, a Move. Yeah, Make yeah. a Move, How yeah. to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. You know, I think if our initial reaction when we have a decision is, oh no, this is scary, I don't know what to do. But what if our gut reaction, I would hope for my readers, our gut reaction would say, okay, wait, are there some experiments I can do that maybe don't lead to the permanent official you know, period at the end of the sentence, but experiments that can open up some understanding that would cause me to make a move. And in so doing, I can move, make a move and have discernment through movement, invite other people into it. And this whole process doesn't need to feel as scary because I know that God's with me in this. If that tool of experimenting could be that for people, I would just be so happy. All right. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Stephanie Williams O'Brien has been my guest. And I'll say it one more time. Her book is Make a Move, How to Stop Wavering and Make Decisions in a Disorienting World. After the break, we're going to talk to Joel Malik. He has uh, written a book. He's a financial planner, but he's also just saying, let's make this final run count and make sure you use your time and money wisely. He's got some really interesting insight. That's all coming up next on Afternoons. It's the F- 
I think it's about time we get a real have a real honest discussion about retirement because I think a lot of people, our culture for sure, views retirement through that financial lens, and we're as believers. That's uh, that's not the the lens we should be looking through. Uh, the retirement dream that we get that we get sold uh, convinces us to accept, and it's just the wrong dream. So we're going to talk to Joel Malik today. He's written a book called After Work, and it's an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams, which I love the title and I love the book. Joel, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah. So I know you wrote this with Alex Lippert, and uh, it is such an important topic. And I know many listeners are either retired or moving towards retirement and it's how are we going to figure out how to make the most for the Lord and the kingdom? Because everybody talks about retirement money. Do we have enough money to retire? And is that where we should right. start? <laughs> yeah, well, it, you might, might be surprised to learn that, you know, by trade, I'm a financial advisor. So, you know, it for me, I, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of that. But what what got Alex and I, you know, excited to write the book or I guess, a better way to explain is we really felt called to write it was, you know, we saw our clients, which, you know, a lot of them are believers, you know, so, so being a believer doesn't mean uh, that you automatically get a fulfilling retirement. That's true. Um, and we would see them just, you know, they would come into our office a couple years into retirement and they would just, they would almost be depressed. You know, I mean, they'd be feeling down, they'd be feeling less useful and some of these people were so talented, Bill, um, you know, and, and maybe the roles they served in during their working years or raising their families at home. I mean, and they were thriving back then. But part of the issue, I think, uh, obviously, when we unpack a number of these concepts in the book, but part of the issue, and we talk about the retirement lie right on the book cover. Mm-hmm. And, and this is important because people think that they're automatically going to love retirement without working at it. You know, it's kind of like marriage. You know, you're 19 years old, right? You're 22 <laughs> years old. You're 20, And you think marriage is a piece of cake, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be all honeymoon and bliss. And um, and obviously it's not, you know, and and that doesn't make marriage bad. It, marriage is a very good thing, just like retirement is a very good thing. But when approached the wrong way, it can really leave us feeling empty. Mm-hmm. What yeah. uh, What do you mean by the sugar rush of retirement? Interesting yeah. couple of words. Yeah, yeah. The sugar rush is a real thing, and it does actually happen. Um, and it pretty much happens to everybody. So it's not like only some people get the sugar rush and some don't. The sugar rush is like that first week. Uh, to six months where you don't have to wake up to an alarm. You don't have anywhere to be. You don't have a report to turn in for anyone. You don't, you get to wake up and enjoy the extra long cup of coffee and, and maybe it's a nice day and you get out in the lawn and you do some, and you start checking off the honeydews and it's like, man, I could get used to this. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that goes on for a long period of time. Some people it goes on for a couple of years. So it's not necessarily a, a fit timeline, but it's this like euphoric moment. I, I, again, if we're looking at the, let's look at the marriage analogy, you know, the honeymoon season is very different than like the next 30 years. And part of the problem with the sugar rush is that we tell people it is a season to be enjoyed and you should embrace it for what it is. 
which it it's this period of time where you're almost like on a Sabbath, you know, you're like on extend, extended sabbatical, you know, and it's like, man, I, this is fantastic. And it is meant to be enjoyed. But then one day you wake up and, and it's winter outside and it's not very nice out and it's cloudy. I know up in uh, Minneapolis, you don't guys don't get any of that. No, nah, not here. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you can't get outside, you can't do it all of a sudden, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of expected of you and it begins to just sink in. And uh, that's when we find people coming back to us saying, I think I'm just going to go get a job. So wow. that the easy button is most people say, I'm just going to go back to work because this whole retirement thing and this lie that I bought uh, really isn't true. And, you know, I mentioned in the beginning how this season can be really fruitful if it's approached the right way. And the right way to approach it is not thinking that a permanent vacation is going to make you happy. You know, this idea that retirement's going to be all about me. I've I've put in my time. I've I've leaned into serving my family or serving my business, and now I need some me time. You know, and there may be some truth to that, and that's why I think. This idea of taking some time off, hitting pause, and then deciding what's next is is really useful. But you can't live in the meism, you know, for thirty years and find fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And so, what the book's aimed at, Bill, is it aimed at helping people. Okay, it's great that you got the financial side right. Good, you need to be a good steward of what's entrusted to you. We don't need to not talk about the financial side. But we need to spend as much time accumulating these other mindsets and behaviors that are going to really carry us through this fulfilling retirement. Okay. Well, Joel, let's talk a little bit about the financial planning side because I find that fascinating, of course. But so in yep. your work in financial planning, what, what kind of regrets do do people often express? Yeah, I think a, a real common one for us is um, – they felt like, you know, the the second home in the mountains or the the property over in Arizona or, you know, whatever it, it is for people, they tend to find that they got much more fulfillment and benefit from the experiences and not the stuff. So I think that's one good takeaway for everyone is, you know, we, we try – like we have this conversation a lot. I'll boil it down to like one very simple type of conversation. Um, hey, you know, should I buy that place? You know, I know for you guys, it might be like, hey, we want to get the lake house for the summer, you know, or or that type of mm-hmm. thing. And here in Colorado, where I live, Bill, it's it's everyone wants like the ski mountain home. Sure. You know, and so whatever it is, um, it it always leaves them disappointed. Interesting. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. It, and so it's like, man, I, I feel like, it's turned into a bunch of upkeep and we don't use it as much as we thought. We thought it'd be this nice dreamy thing. And <laughs> it's really just turned into a big old headache, you know, and not to mention it's expensive. Right. Um, you know, I always counsel people. I'm like, man, spend your time on new experiences, you know, take the grandkids on a fun trip to Florida or, or wherever rent or rent a, a lake house for a couple weeks, you know, and then drop the headache of having to maintain it. You know, and and you'll find that you actually spend less money and you get new experiences more that way. So that's just kind of one example. Mm -hmm. I watched a friend of mine who recently uh, retired, and there's a there's a certain tension 
when he was working that really uh, worked to his advantage. So he really had to work hard and get his meetings done because he had a two two ten tea time, right? Right. Now that yeah. you're retired and you can make a tea time anytime you want, golf isn't quite as much fun just because you're not racing to get to the course and get all your work done. So that with that tension gone, um, just staying busy in retirement isn't really not the best strategy, is it? No, no. And being busy is not being meaningful. And so we, we unpack in the book, um, you know, we've got plenty of retired clients who are so busy they can't even come in to see us uh-huh. for an investment review. And they're not busy with anything in particular. You know, it's like, oh, I got this doctor appointment at this time, and then I'm going to play cards, and then I'm going to go play some pickleball. And it's like, okay, you know, Ernest Hemingway has this this great quote in his book, The Sun Also Rises, where his two characters are talking, and they're having a conversation with one another. And one asks, you know, how did you go bankrupt? And he responds, and he says, uh, two ways, actually, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> and and what I find in retirement is this a very true quote because people are filling their lives with things that are busy. And there's your gradualness, right? Think of it like spending on a credit card. You're spending on the credit card every day. It doesn't feel like a lot, but then the bill comes due. Right. You know, it's like, holy cow, how did I spend 10 grand in a month? You know, um, and in retirement's the same way. We have to be super careful of how we're spending our hours in our days. We have to be intentional to make sure they're aligning with this. This I call it like the end of life conversation. I try not to get too morbid with it, but you know we're all going to face this moment someday where we're going to hopefully have a moment to reflect. And I don't think we're going to say things like, "I wish I'd have just played some more pickleball." Right. Right. It doesn't make pickleball bad. I love golf. I love pickleball. I'm all in favor of everyone doing those things. But what we're we're calling people to in the book is kind of a higher level of interaction with society. You know, like when I go play that round of golf, can I maybe take a friend of mine that I know, you know, his son's really struggling with drug addiction? You know, or I know they just they lost you know, a child or something like, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like working in my mission or my calling into my round of golf. Nice. You know? And so it's like this idea that you, you have this bigger purpose outside of the activities that you do. Um, and you're sort of on mission, whether you're super active, you're traveling or you're in a nursing home. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't mean your life's over when you go to the assisted living facility. Yeah. So, um, and, and, I just hear yeah. you, Joel, saying it's important to be intentional. So uh, enjoy your yeah. round of golf, but keep keep your antenna up because there's probably someone that you could invite into that round that you could do some real significant ministry with. Exactly. You know, people are hurting all around us, and we we kind of intuitively know that. But I think as as human beings, we try to not get in the mess, you know, because we just sort of want to take care of ourselves and we want to be okay. You know, we don't want to go over to Bob and say, Bob, look, I know it's a little awkward, but like, I, it looks like you're struggling, mm-hmm. you know, or something I can do. Where's there a way I can help? Like, let's go play around a golf, man. Let's go do lunch. Let's go, you know, but, but there's a big difference between asking Bob to do that with an intention of helping Bob unpack some of these things in life, as opposed to just going out and trying to break 80. Right, right. You know, so. Joel, let me take a little break. Joel Malik is my guest. He's 
written a book called After Work, uh, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. You encourage uh, people not to burn energy on things they can't control. I want to talk about that when we come back. Welcome back to the show. Joel Malik is my guest. He's a partner with Steadfast Wealth Company in Colorado Springs. He joined the financial services industry in 2001, graduated with a degree in finance from Seattle Pacific. He's married with six kids. You know a lot about planning, don't you, Joel? (laughs) Yeah, we just got back from a trip to Glacier National Park. We did 2,300 miles. So how's that for a big plan? (laughs) That's incredible. All right. Now, you you encourage people in your book not to burn energy on things they can't control. Like what? Yeah, I mean, I, I see this all the time in the the business that I'm in, and and the most common one I see is this idea that when people retire, they now have more time to focus on their investments. And uh, this is a big big no no from my perspective because. You know, I tell people, uh, the more you check it, the more it's going to own you. Mm. Um, and so I've got clients that it's on their app. You know, if, if, if the day's green, then they're happy. And if it's red, then they're, they're kind of somber. And, and it, it's kind of funny because it obviously any one day doesn't change, you know, what you're going to achieve over 10 years. Um, so why let it affect you? And it does affect us. And, I'm an advisor. I do this for a living, and I have investments myself, and I only check them one one time per year. Really? And that's a, that's a habit I had to learn. Wow. Um, and it's not easy to do, but it is life changing. It's like let's just say it's life giving. <laughs> um, you know, because your result in your investment por- portfolio is going to be what it is over the course of the year, no matter how many times you check it, Bill. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. You know, really interesting. And you make you just make yourself miserable along the way, basically. Cause yeah. The nut, the end result is you're pri- predominantly checking it when things are not going well. Right. You know, and so you put you set, just set yourself up. And so what I tell people is I say, you know, don't focus on that. You know, uh, implement some of these behaviors and do things like we we have this section of the book called called you know make morning strategic. You know, where it's not about getting up and, you know, checking your maybe how your stocks are doing or or don't hop on Facebook. Don't get right on email. You know, let's spend some time on our health, maybe some journaling, maybe some devotional time, you know, and maybe something creative that you love to do. Sure. Perhaps, Bill, you, I know uh, you're into comedy, you know, so maybe it's developing some new content. Um, you know, I have plenty of clients that are into art or writing you know, the mornings are the best time to get that creativity out. Yeah. New content um, would be too and, much work, but I get your point. <laughs> you know, and that's the moment where you're not setting the stage for this. Oh, you know, the market's down 2% today. Oh, I just feel like the sense of fear now and stress. And instead, you're you're really setting the stage for a a very successful day by getting started off on the right foot. So, I see clients all the time spending their time worrying 
you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, obviously the Bible has a lot to say about that is, you know, what can a man add to his life by, right. by worrying about today? Well, nothing. Yeah. Joel, no, is the answer. Yeah. Joel, your book after work, which is an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. It highlights 10 vital keys to consider for retirement. Maybe you can just give us a couple of those. Yeah. So I tell people in and of themselves, you know, they're not necessarily rocket science, but there are observations that I've had over the last 20 years in working with people, people who have done this really well and people who have really struggled. So there are more observations of of things we need to focus on. Uh, A couple of them, you know, I'll give you two. Uh, The one I get a lot of comments on is the journaling chapter. Um, And I get comments from, Oh, I love that. What an impact to, I am never going to journal no matter what you say. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And I, I give a lot of reasons as to one, how you should journal and, and why it can easily fit into 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes and the long-term impacts for the retiree in particular. I journal, um, I'm a journaler. I'm not retired, and I get lots of benefits out of it. So I think everyone should, but I think the retiree in particular should journal. And the reason I think that is retirees, they need, they're going to feel like they're not achieving much of anything. You know, once we get past the retirement sugar rush bill and we get into this season where it's like, who am I? Why am I here? What, what is my calling? all these bigger life questions and they're going to start feeling less useful. The journal is going to help them see how much more they're achieving throughout a year than they remember. Wow. Okay. So we go into some stuff there on how to do that. And then the other one is, is a practice you can take with you anywhere, no matter what you're doing. And it's the practice of awe. Um, And I think it's something that, you know, we take for granted the things we're grateful for, the world around us. And if we carry around this idea of awe and we help people try to understand how to do that, it's amazing how much it lifts your mood throughout the day. And if, and if your mood is lifted, uh, you are much more impactful to those around you. Joel, you're kind of answering my next question because I was going to say, what about the listeners that don't have two nickels to rub together and they're living on assistance and they're, they just don't have any resources. They don't have a, a retirement portfolio and, and they're going to have to uh, not have much, many resources going into their retirement mm-hmm. years. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, our book is intentionally not written towards uh, the wealthy people in our society. Okay. Um, good to know. Sure. It's going, it's going to help them. Absolutely. But we wanted to keep it agnostic because we find that, and I work with a lot of missionaries um, who have been overseas for 25, 30 years, serving in mission fields, and they move back to the U.S. after their ministry. And not that their ministry is over, but it's taken on a different different form now. And they they don't have a ton of money saved. Um, But, man, are they uh, finding fulfillment, you know, and – and it, I will tell you this, Bill, and I, I just know from experience is that your level of fulfillment is not driven by the amount of money you have saved. Agree. And uh, I've got, you know, retired missionaries who have a fifth of what some of my, you know, more average clients might have, and they are making an impact. They're still 
you know, doing all the things you and I do, going out to dinner occasionally, you know, making meals at home. They have a house. They, I mean, they're, they're just making an impact. Right. Right. You know, the advantage they have is they spent 30 years learning how to do that overseas. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so, so they're well-trained. In, in fact, I would say they're probably better suited for retirement yeah. than my, the average person that has lived here in the U S all their life. But, and I, I would imagine Joel, these missionaries are highly relational people. Uh, so maybe you would talk about the impact of loneliness. Yeah. Loneliness in our book. I mean, we give some statistics that are just shocking. I don't know if you knew this, but, um, divorce, the rate of divorce in, in America is, generally leveled off, except for those over age 55. Those over age 55, it's doubled. And those over age 65, it's actually tripled. Um, And then the rate of suicide actually is growing the fastest amongst those over age 50. We tend to think it's like the teenagers, you know, at the school. And granted, that, that is a problem around here where I live. But, you know, it doesn't get the headline when someone in retirement, you know, unfortunately decides to do something like that. Um, and the the problem is, Bill, is that the the uselessness and the loneliness is a real disease. Uh, and you take and you put on top of that like a COVID type, you know, lockdown situation. And I think we've got for ourselves a, a pretty serious pandemic. And if you look at yourself as sort of on the bigger calling, sort of on mission and retirement, you have a purpose no matter whether you're working or not. Um, it really helps combat the loneliness uh, that we find. We talk a little bit about that in the book, you know, how to uh, structure your day. We actually have a chapter in the book called Calendar. Um, you know, it's very pragmatic, mm-hmm. you know, how to structure the day and 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 what it should look like and yeah. So, I mean, we're just, we want to help. We want to see people thrive. Amen. Joel, you also you talk know? about lifelong learning, which I love, by the way. Uh, talk about yeah. that a little bit. You say that's a cornerstone habit. Say more. Yeah. Cornerstone habits are the, are just the best. And what we mean by cornerstone habit is a term we came up with uh, because a cornerstone of a structure supports not only the corner, but it supports everything else in the structure. And and that's a great way to think about a cornerstone habit because learning is an amazing habit. And it's not just for people who are 22 years old. You know, um, We find that people that take on a new learning endeavor in retirement get so many other benefits outside of learning the one thing they're studying. Um, you know, They get additional relationships they might build, expertises they might gain. They might find that they end up wanting to teach in that thing that they learned. You know, we have a retired, uh, uh, individual that we mentioned in the book who was great at math. And when he quit his job, he went in and he started teaching math to uh, inner city uh, children. And not only was he helping them in their grades, but he really became a mentor to them. Yeah. And so he was helping them in life as well. And he said that he got so much more fulfillment in his life after work than he actually did in his entire career. Those are such encouraging stories. Uh, I know you probably, having worked with so many people doing their financial planning, you, you've you got some incredible examples of people who are doing retirement really well and serving the kingdom and yeah. making a big difference in the world in their in their latter years. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just having a lot of fun with this. I mean, I feel like people ask me, like, oh, when's your next one come out? I'm like, never. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. 
because when God called me to do it, I was like, really? You know, like I never thought I would write a book, but I, I felt like he put something on my heart is that this should be your greatest season yet. This shouldn't be like riding off into the sunset. I've had my time on the stage of life. You know, my favorite is when people get asked at a party, what did you used to do? It's like, I don't want to be a, what did I used to do? Yeah, right. You know, I want to be a, who are you? What are you doing now? You know, what kind of impact are you making? And uh, what I'll leave you with too, and I don't know how much more time we have, but I just want to say, um, this is a, it's meant to be different. It's not meant to be the same thing when you're working, but it's not meant to be a disappointment. And if you approach it right, boy, can it be fulfilling. Amen. Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be on the show today. Uh, Fascinating conversation. I know I got a lot out of it, so I appreciate uh, your work on the book After Work, An Honest Discussion About the Retirement Lie and How to Live a Future Worthy of Dreams. Joel Malik has been my guest. Thank you again, Joel. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate your time. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.